There's just one other thing, sir. What's that? I'll explain it to you in a minute. May I use your telephone? Go right ahead. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. Again, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And uh, before the break, uh, we told you we have a very special guest on the line. And our next guest is an Iraqi-born writer. He's a lecturer. He's also a very loud anti-war activist and has been for many years. And he's joining us now on the live link. His name is Sami Ramadani. Hello, Sami. How are you? All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. We're so pleased uh, that you're able to join us this week. Let's start off with uh, the the really main topic, and uh, this is also an area, of course, that you're so well-placed to comment on because you've been a, a loud voice on this issue of Iraq and the West for, for many years. This is your country of birth. Well, what's happened over the last three weeks have thrust the country of Iraq back into the forefront of Middle Eastern geopolitics, but well, well, in fact, it never left. Actually, it was only obscured in the West by ten years of upheavals in Libya and Syria. But it took the stable genius in the White House to set off a series of events that have uh, culminated in uh, what many thought was the unthinkable in Washington: U.S. troops being asked to leave the country. Uh, how did we get to this point? Uh, you can give us a quick a quick synopsis of, of how you see events of the last three weeks, Sammy. Okay, Patrick, it's probably a good point to start our conversation with, uh, namely Parliament and the Iraqi government asking the uh, U.S.-led troops to leave Iraq. The phrase used in the official uh, decision, the Parliament's decision, was all foreign forces. And we obviously know that um, these are led by the United States as the biggest uh, of the lot in terms of numbers, equipment, and so on. Uh, so essentially, they are asking the United States to leave. It's 90, 95% of the forces are, uh, are U.S. forces. These forces came in uh, to uh, assist Iraq. Iraqi government officially asked uh, the so-called coalition against terrorism to come and help Iraq defeat ISIS. Um, your listeners might uh, might be well educated into, into this question of ISIS, who, who uh, practically invaded Iraq, crossing the borders from Syria in 2014. They took over uh, the northern. Uh, uh, northwestern province of Mosul and kept advancing until they reached the outskirts of Baghdad practically, threatening the capital, taking over about a third of the country. And for uh, several months, uh, uh, the United States was watching instead of uh, helping uh, Iraq as they always claimed uh, to be there for um, to help Iraq against uh, external aggression and so on. There is an actual agreement between uh, the two countries, so-called strategic agreement. And it was at the time in 2014 that Iraq needed most help. And only Iran and, uh, and one or two other countries started helping Iraq uh, to defeat ISIS terrorists, Daesh, 
the Arabic word for it is Daesh, which uh, ISIS hates uh, the word Daesh. So uh, to defeat this, uh, the terrorist hordes, uh, Iraq relied heavily on Iran at the time. And once Iran intervened uh, in terms of equipment and uh, and some trainers and so on, and at the time that effort was led by General Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated uh, a couple of weeks ago by the United States. And that effort um, started succeeding in blocking the advance of uh, ISIS. It was then that the United States decided to respond because they felt that uh, uh, Iraq is now well capable of uh, of repulsing the aggression, particularly after uh, the voluntary force of the PMU or PMF, Popular Mobilization Forces or Popular Mobilization Units. A massive volunteer force was formed in response to a fatwa by the by Iraq's leading uh, cleric Ayatollah Sistani, Ali Sistani, Sayyid Ali Sistani. Now, uh, <clears throat> Ayatollah Sistani's fatwa calling on all Iraqis regarding of their uh, nationality, religion, sect to volunteer to repulse the aggression. And hundreds of thousands volunteered. And that force eventually not only defeated ISIS on the ground alongside the Iraqi armed forces, but also became a major political factor in Iraq's politics. And that's important because it relates to the to the parliament's decision to expel the U.S. forces. It relates to the change of balance of political forces within Iraq. It is part of the mix, uh, a very important part of the mix of uh, developments, uh, political developments in Iraq. The rise of the PMU forces has disturbed the United States enormously because one, uh, although U.S. Air Force uh, was uh, helping in terms of uh, uh, defeating ISIS from the air, they were also caught uh, trying to uh, save uh, some ISIS fighters to escape and so on. It's a long story, but uh, the entry of ISIS in Iraq was at the time suspicious because it was backed by several political forces within Iraq who were allied to the United States. So the initial entry was called the big Iraqi revolution. Uh, The actual ISIS takeover of Mosul was described by the pro-U.S. forces in Iraq as being a revolution until ISIS started chopping people's heads and throwing people from top of buildings and raping women and um, trying to eliminate uh, Christians, Shia, Muslims, uh, uh, Sunni Muslims who objected to their presence and Yazidis, other minorities, until that ugly face of their uh, uh, own videos was shown. Uh, These forces, pro-U.S. forces in Iraq and the U.S. itself was uh, was practically welcoming these uh, these hordes. So so you're talking about a very complex uh, political mix. On the one hand, the United States is pretending to fight against ISIS, but also at the time they were keen on overthrowing the Maliki government. 
Maliki was the prime minister when when ISIS invaded Iraq. And uh, Maliki developed a contradiction with the U.S. government. And that contradiction was mainly around the question of uh, buying uh, weapons from Russia instead of the United States. That upset the United States enormously. And also contradictions with the Kurdish uh, leadership in Iraqi Kurdistan. And again, I will come back to the question of Iraqi Kurdistan because it's an important element of Iraqi politics. But let me go back to this business of the United States trying to uh, overthrow the current government, which has now asked for the U.S. to leave Iraq. Now, I mentioned the rise of the PMU as having changed the balance of forces in Iraq in terms of total U.S. domination of Iraq. Iraq was invaded by the United States in 2003. Complete control. They installed a new government, disbanded Iraqi armed forces, disbanded the ministries, uh, complete, obviously, when they appointed a ruler for Iraq. Initially, it was General Garner, then later somebody by the, uh, by the name of Bremer, Paul Bremer. He became the ruler of Iraq, uh, occupied Iraq. The United States officially recognized they were in occupation of Iraq. And the Security Council passed a resolution calling Iraq an occupied state by the United States and its allied forces. <clears throat> so this evolution from total domination to a balance of forces where the United States is strong in Iraq, but not totally dominating the Iraqi government, is a big, big strategic change in Iraq since its occupation in 2003. And and there are two factors why this happened. One was the 2011 departure of most of the occupation troops from Iraq following their... uh, practically a defeat at the hands of the Iraqi resistance to their presence. The United States lost four and a half thousand casualties, deaths amongst its uh, soldiers, uh, military personnel, and over 50,000, some estimate about 100,000 injured uh, soldiers in, in Iraq. Uh, because they kept rotating their forces as well. So the number of injuries was massive. Now, uh, by 2011, the United States admitted to itself that it cannot defeat this type of resistance and decided to withdraw, and they withdrew most of the occupation forces. Now, this gave a breathing space for any Iraqi political force that is opposed to their presence, uh, direct presence, direct control, to grow a bit stronger. Then came what I described as the rise of the PMU, volunteer force, to defeat ISIS. That force remained in existence, and it became so powerful that uh, the Iraqi government officially recognized it as part of the Iraqi armed forces. And uh, that was a very, very significant development that upset the United States because now you have hundreds of thousands under arms recognized by the Iraqi government as part of the, <coughs> sorry, as part of the uh, Iraqi um, armed forces. 
and they uh, they are a very strong force. They are anti-U.S. presence very significantly in Iraq. So you have these two factors, the 2011 withdrawal and the breathing space for anti-U.S. Uh, uh, political forces in Iraq, as well as the rise of the PMUs as of 2014 onwards. And there are political forces in Iraq which back the PMUs in parliament and within the government. <clears throat> and this new prime minister, who was appointed last year, um, sorry, 2017, we are in 220 now, 2018, uh, about uh, a year, just over a year ago. Um, uh, this new prime minister, uh, by the name of Adil Abdel Mahdi, uh, is born out of this new balance of forces. He's not anti-US uh, per se, uh, but he is willing to be independent of US control. And that's what he did, being part of this new balance of forces. The PMUs and the political forces backing them, as well as a substantial section, I would say a majority, of the Iraqi public who are against U.S. Uh, foreign bases in Iraq, the U.S. bases, U.S. presence, the biggest embassy in the world based in Baghdad. Uh, this uh, coalition of forces started enacting measures that upset the United States enormously. And if I could quickly go through them, Patrick... Sure. Uh, I hope I'm not losing your listeners. No, uh, go ahead. Uh, these uh, these uh, <clears throat> steps that the current Iraqi government took, um, the, I could mention six important ones quickly. One is that they opened the borders with Syria. The borders with Syria were officially closed. So one of the first thing they did was open. This was significant because there are still terrorist forces within Syria and in uh, northern and northwestern Iraq. <clears throat> and these forces are operating across the border. So there is cooperation between Iraq and Syria to defeat the remnants of the terrorist forces. This upset the United States. They didn't want that border open. They don't want Syria and Iraq to cooperate. Um, so that's number one. Uh, they crossed a red line there. Number two was Iraq rejected the so-called deal of the century, the U.S. and, and Israel, Netanyahu's government, um, talking about a deal of the century led by the United States to resolve the uh, so-called Middle East conflict, i.e., and this is what how the Palestinians interpreted, to liquidate any a future Palestine independent state and to liquidate their uh, independent existence. They called it the deal of the century. And Iraq refused to come on, on board. Saudi Arabia was on board, some of the Gulf states and some of their uh, pro-US forces across the Middle East, they welcomed but uh, important states in the area like uh, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and also Iraq objected strongly, and Iraq refused. So that was important. Number three, and quite significantly, this current prime minister took his entire cabinet almost, and uh, tens of Iraqi experts, and took them to China. 
and he signed a massive uh, deal with China, a 20-year uh, agreement and various protocols to uh, build Iraq's infrastructure in return for uh, oil exports. So Iraq pays in oil uh, a minimum of 100,000 barrels a day. China imports from Iraq about 850,000 barrels a day. Uh, a minimum of 100,000 of that will be reserved for infrastructures uh, to be built by China and Iraq. And this could rise to about 300,000 barrels a day over the years, depending on the nature of the project. There are lots, things like railway lines, um, hospitals, schools, roads, uh, uh, factories, electricity generation, all manner of projects, because we have to remember that the United States practically destroyed Iraq's infrastructure in the 2003 occupation of Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. United States destroyed. And before that, the various bombing raids on Iraq over 13 years, from 91 to 2003, there was massive economic blockade plus occasional uh, air raids on Iraq. So Iraq's infrastructure was destroyed. And this is part of the effort of the Iraqi government, corrupt even though it is, and uh, inept and popularly not so popular because of, uh, of corruption, etc., has gone and did this with China. This people welcome because the country is, uh, is practically on its knees in terms of infrastructure and productive units in agriculture and uh, industry. And also strategically, the agreement includes uh, building the FAO port in Basra. This will allow Iraq to have a proper deep sea port. This annoys all the Gulf uh, states from Kuwait downwards uh, uh, because Iraq will become independent of their ports and will have a proper deep sea port because there are efforts by the United States to practically make Iraq landlocked. There is an, uh, a gap that Iraq can use and build a, a strategic port there. Um, uh, a fourth factor in the U.S. getting upset is Iraq's refusal to impose sanctions on Iran. This was a huge uh, problem uh, as far as the United States was concerned, that Iraq, uh, a country which has over a thousand kilometers of borders with Iran, is refusing to uh, to apply sanctions on, on on Iran. So that was upsetting to the U.S. Uh, a fifth factor was refusal to disband the PMUs, popularly known uh, known as the Hasht. Hasht means mobilization in Arabic. The PMU forces Iraq refused to disband, and this was a major factor in the contradiction between the Iraqi government and Iraq and the United States. Number six factor was um, uh, the collapse of talks between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Saudis wanted to practically bribe Iraq into supporting U.S. policy in the region. This, uh, this deal uh, uh, or potential deal collapsed. 
So you have all these factors plus others. I I I don't want to go into too much detail. Uh, uh, pushed the United States or one, uh, the United States policymakers thought that's it. We have to remove uh, Adel Abdel Mahdi's government, and they worked through their civil society organizations in Iraq. And this is very significant within an Iraqi context that the United States, after the occupation of Iraq, established over 400 so-called civil society, non-governmental organizations in Iraq. They were ostensibly, supposedly charity organizations. They spread across uh, Iraq. Uh, Some are to do with the social media presence and some to do with the charity activity, some to do with so-called human rights activity, and so on amongst youth, especially amongst the youth of Iraq. So you have a range of these hundreds, and they were officially paid at the time by Paul Premer, the ruler of Iraq, $100,000 each to establish them. And this uh, uh, financial support continued ever since. They became quite strong. And they have a powerful social media presence. So whenever demonstrations, protest movements, legitimate legitimate public activity in Iraq erupts against corruption, uh, against unemployment, improving people's basic uh, lives, ruined uh, after the occupation onwards by successive regimes established by by the United States, these protests they jumped on, especially after the appointment of Adel Abdel Mahdi. You notice enormous activity in the social media trying to uh, ride the wave of popular, legitimate popular anger and trying to divert some of the slogans of the demonstrators. So you had hundreds of pro-US driven by social media, so-called demonstrators infiltrating these popular protests. And they wanted these protests to come to become violent and confrontational instead of focusing on the people's popular demands. And this is exactly what happened. And they tried from day one of the demonstrations that started on 1st of October. That date was a bit uh, suspicious because it was backed by these uh, NGOs and social media. But the response of the masses was massive. Hundreds of thousands of people went into the streets demanding their rights. But these infiltrators tried to make it violent And um, simultaneously, there were snipers on rooftops that started shooting the demonstrators. Hundreds died. Hundreds were killed. That angered the people no end. No one knew who was firing at them. Now, these social media, pro-US groups and uh, TV stations across the Arab world, Saudi-backed, uh, funded uh, uh, Al Hurra TV and radio, which is a U.S. official radio station, started accusing the Iraqi government of killing the demonstrators. Now, <clears throat> nobody knows really until today 
<coughs> who exactly was behind the killings. They were masked uh, snipers on rooftops. They could have been branches of government security forces. Remember these security forces, some of them were actually established by the United States after the occupation. So they are infiltrated by pro-US forces. Uh, it could be some secret militias in Iraq. It could be uh, any uh, number of possibilities as to who killed the demonstrators. The Iraqi government officially announced that there is a third force in the country that killed them. Who that third force was, we have never as yet to discover. But the scenario that uh, ruled the day according to the social media and so on is that the Iraqi government killed the demonstrators and the Western media picked that up as well. So the narrative became that the Iraqi government deliberately sat and decided to kill the demonstrators. This is, uh, as far as I could see and work out, is false. There was no such decision by the high command. The Iraqi prime minister happens to be also the commander-in-chief of all Iraqi armed forces. And these pro-U.S. media, uh, uh, pro-Western media, also started pushing the line that was actually Iran and Qasem Soleimani, General Soleimani, that actually killed the demonstrators. And this was quite obviously a preparation for assassinating Qasem Soleimani and assassinating somebody called Al-Muhandis, Abu Mahdi Al-Muhandis. He is effectively was, until he was assassinated on the same day, in the same car as Qasem Soleimani, he was, in effect, the commander of the PMUs in Iraq, an Iraqi official. He became famous in Iraq for fighting ISIS within the PMU. His official post was a deputy commander of the PMU forces. And he was assassinated uh, by uh, U.S. drones at Baghdad airport. Uh, the, that road on which, in which they were assassinated was, is actually part of the uh, Baghdad International Airport. So a huge aggression against Iraq itself that killed uh, Soleimani and killed Al-Muhandis. Um, Soleimani was extremely popular, as you know, in Iran, but also popular among supporters of the PMU and among important sections of the public in Iraq for fighting against, uh, against ISIS forces. Um, this angered people no end, angered obviously the Iraqi government because they were they did not know, they were not informed, and obviously they were shaken to their roots by the United States sending airplanes, killing an Iraqi official and a guest of Iraq. Soleimani was officially invited to come to Iraq, and he was due to meet Iraq's prime minister that morning, fatal morning, at 8.30 in the morning, he was due to meet Adil Abdel Mahdi, the Iraqi prime minister. Now, that triggered an enormous, uh, uh, important chain of events uh, uh, that, uh, that we are talking about today that led to 
uh, enormous anger that led to Iraqi parliament approving a, uh, a decision uh, uh, initiated by Iraq's prime minister. He asked personally, he came to parliament and asked parliament to vote to back him, to ask the U.S.-led forces, all foreign forces uh, in Iraq, to leave Iraq uh, ASAP as soon as possible. It was more or less an immediate request. So this is where we are at, and that assassination of Soleimani and al-Muhandis meant that Iraqi PMUs immediately said we will retaliate against the United States where, when, and how we will decide upon. <clears throat> and Iran also declared, declared that they will retaliate. And within a few days, they did, Iran did retaliate, and they bombarded with ballistic missiles fired from Iran into two U.S. bases in Iraq. They are supposed to be Iraqi bases, but really, in effect, they are U.S. bases with thousands of troops in them. One is called Ain al-Assad, northwest Iraq, um, and one in the north in Iraqi Kurdistan in Erbil. That received four or five missiles, and the Ain al-Assad, the biggest U.S. base in Iraq, uh, received 13 uh, missiles, causing the uh, the base to practically shut down because it was um, the, practically destroyed by very accurate missiles from Iran. That was a massive event, the first time any country in the world, any state in the world, uh, since World War II to attack a U.S. base in this uh, in this way, and the United States. Uh, did not retaliate. Iran issued a warning immediately after that retaliation saying that if the U.S. retaliates, we will declare all-out war and uh, we will punish all U.S. bases in the region and we will hit Israel too. That uh, pushed uh, Trump and the others to uh, uh, not to retaliate and they they accepted defeat practically in that in that confrontation. Iran, once and for all, proved that they have a retaliatory uh, deterrent that uh, could and would probably prevent any all-out declaration of war on Iran by the United States or by Israel or by both. So this, if you like, uh, briefly is where we are at, at the moment. And uh, so that that strike by by Iran was significant. Uh, it, it well, it exposed the United States' military position there as as being weaker than a lot of people had thought it was over the years. But it also exposed uh, its allies as well, and that's important because all of these bases in the Middle East, particularly the ones in the Gulf states, are you know being hosted by those client, effective client states of of the U.S. of the West, and uh, so it, it's it means that they're they're also potentially uh, a target 
as well as as a host country. So their protection of the that the U.S. has offered those uh, oil rich GCC countries is is not as strong <laughs> and cohesive maybe as one might think when faced with uh, some sort of a regional uh, presence that could fire a medium-range missile so accurately as they demonstrated. But not only that, politically, it's exposed them because, you know, it was very quiet with, I didn't hear much, uh, no statements of support nor condemnation from the Gulf states. And I heard that uh, Saudi uh, Mohammed um, bin Salman uh, dispatched his brother Khalid to Washington to apparently to lobby restraint by the White House immediately after that because they were panicking about a potential escalation. You know, what are your thoughts on, on on that? What how what is the true what is the true feeling or fear of? Or not, or per- perhaps this could lead to more anti-U.S. sentiments, even among the GCC states that might see the U.S. or Trump as an unpredictable, uh, irrational rogue actor. <laughs> how do you how do you see this this dynamic right now? I think you raise a very important point, uh, Patrick, and you summed it up quite well. These uh, U.S. Um, client states, practically, you're talking about Israel. Saudi Arabia, United Arab uh, uh, Emirates. These are the three states most closely allied to the United States. And Iran officially said that they will attack Israel by name, but any state in the region that acts as a host for U.S. bases. Uh, So they issued that warning to all these states, and they know who they are. (laughs) They are the Gulf Gulf states, and perhaps even uh, in Jordan as well, there is U.S. uh, presence. So the warning is official from Iran, and once these missiles hit the U.S. bases, and the United States had to swallow that that strike, uh, all these states that you... uh, you are uh, talking about, Patrick, have to take note, obviously, unless all these ruling regimes are planning to pack up and take their helicopters and leave the area. Obviously, they have taken note that uh, they could no longer rely on the United States uh, to to protect them. Trump is on the record as saying that uh, Saudi Arabia is paying him uh, um, and some of the other Gulf states paying him hundreds of billions of dollars in return for protection. He actually said it. He said that see, these regimes would collapse within two weeks without U.S. presence. And obviously he was threatening them to pay up more because they did pay over $400 billion in forms of investments and all sorts into the United States uh, uh, economy. But this uh, new development exposed these states. Actually, you refer to bin Salman asking for restraint. Netanyahu also is reported to have uh, asked for restraint. Israel, uh, because part of the deterrent power that, uh, that Iran has developed or independently of it, uh, of it even, is the formidable rise of Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. Your listeners uh, might remember that uh, 
in 2000 and in 2006, Hezbollah defeated the Israeli invading forces in Lebanon. That was a historic development too, that Lebanon acquired a deterrent force against Israel. Hezbollah uh, has got hundreds of thousands of missiles. They used thousands of them uh, effectively during the 2006 war that forced Israel to withdraw its invading forces from the Lebanon. And in fact, the United States at the time and Condoleezza Rice, the foreign secretary, wanted Israel to continue the war, but Israel said, we cannot tolerate any more casualties, we have to withdraw, and eventually they did. So that was a historic defeat for the Israeli forces. And Hezbollah acquired that massive deterrent force, not only on the ground, defeating uh, Israeli tanks and forces, but also with these missiles that could reach any part of Israel. So you have a situation where in any all-out war, you have both Iran and Hezbollah, and now even the forces fighting the Saudi-led war against Yemen. In Yemen, there is a force now, the Western uh, media calls it the Houthis. There are a a coalition of Yemeni forces that oppose the Saudi-led war backed by the United States and other Western powers, uh, to uh, control Yemen and rule Yemen. And Yemeni people are rejecting that. They are forced to to defend their country. They are under severe sanctions. There are millions threatened with starvation in Yemen. But this opposition force to uh, the Saudi-led war, U.S.-backed war, has also developed a deterrent force by hitting uh, um, the oil refinery in in Saudi Arabia a few months ago. So you have this amalgam of forces, and of course the PMUs in Iraq, to take it back to Iraq as well, and the defeat of most of the terrorist groups in Syria. That was also a defeat for the United States, because these terrorist groups in Syria, since 2011, have been backed by the CIA, and they were stationed, or uh, Turkey became their initial base, got armed, weaponized, if you like, there, uh, and sent into Syria. Between 50 and 80,000 terrorists came from all over the world, through Turkey, through Jordan, into Syria, to, to affect regime change there. Again, Obviously, the United States at the time in 2011 tried to jump on popular demands and protests. They managed successfully to infiltrate the country, send terrorist groups to uh, affect regime change in Syria. That failed, and these terrorist groups are mostly defeated in Syria. They are still present along the Syria-Iraqi borders and also present in the province of Idlib. So you have these uh, successive, if you like, defeats for the U.S. and its allies in the region. So the balance of forces has historically changed, strategically changed, and these pro-U.S. allied forces and states are now uh, uh, shaken 
and uh, and there is there is uh, there is a possibility that some of them will start distancing themselves from the United States. It's difficult to to imagine because of their complete dependency on U.S. support, but. Uh, I think uh, there is a possibility they will start uh, becoming less belligerent towards uh, towards Iran and more cautious in what they say and do. And also, yeah. the, the the world economy has changed as well. And, uh, you, you know, the, the West or the U.S. is not the number one consumer of uh, petroleum uh, from from the Middle East. It is, it's China, it's Japan, it's the tiger economies in Asia, uh, South Korea, etc. So the, in terms of the clients, uh, they have new customers uh, in Asia. Do you think that the, the, the U.S. military posture has, is, is outdated and it, it doesn't even function from an imperial standpoint anymore to, let's say, you know, secure uh, and control the supply of oil from the Persian Gulf? That uh, There's just certain realities that are, that are changing globally that make the U.S. position maybe just inherently weaker, do you think? It is weaker in some respects, but I think we have to also uh, point out that the United States, although was historically a consumer of oil of the Middle East, it's no longer so as of recent uh, development, it uh, seeks to control that strategic product. So control over the product is an essential part of the scenario. Mm-hmm. And the United States' aggressivity in the region um, since uh, since the uh, so-called neocons took over uh, in the United States, uh, <clears throat> if, we, if we count it really back to uh, George Bush Sr. onwards, uh, this new sort of uh, militarized, aggressive posture war by by other means of all sorts, and they uh, sought to control the product and deny rivals from controlling it or from accessing it on commercial basis. So they wanted to deny China, deny Russia, uh, deny uh, India, deny Japan even, and uh, uh, having independent access or a form of uh, control over the product. And this is part of the imperialist scenario. They want raw materials for themselves, but they also want to deny it to any potential rival or actual rival. So the United States, I think it is wrong to say, this is what I think, that the United States no longer needs the Middle East. That is a wrong assessment of the picture. The United States is weakened in the Middle East, does not uh, rely on the oil directly, but that oil is a very still uh, worldwide and within the world economy, a probably still the most important raw material to control. Uh, because uh, as we know, uh, oil, petroleum, uh, is not only used for as an energy source, but also is the most important raw material in the petrochemical industry. Most of the chemical industries of the world rely one way or the other 
as an ingredient, uh, a byproduct to use oil and petroleum to process it and use plastics and all sorts of modern materials and the petrochemical and chemical industries rely partly on uh, on petroleum. So you have a very strategic product that the United States needs to, to control. Uh, but you are right, obviously, China uh, does not even rely now uh, on, uh, because U.S. oil companies don't necessarily ship the oil or no longer ship the oil to the United States. They ship it all over the world. So they have control, some of these giant oil companies, over the distribution of the oil. Also, oil is traded in dollars. Now, that gives the United States uh, remaining enormous power. That could be shaken longer term. Because, for example, Iraq's deal with China is oil in return for products. That could easily bypass, by, bypass the dollar in future. Because the main bank in which the equivalent sums of, uh, of cash for this oil will be put in a Chinese bank, not in an American bank, although a branch will be built, uh, will, be, will, will be established in the United States as part of this deal, but the main bank holding the funds of the oil funds will be based in China. So there is, there is evolution and development, and several countries were planning, uh, are planning still to bypass the dollar. This could be a strategic development too to weaken U.S. imperialist power. And and lastly, we just got a, a few minutes left. I, I want to get your final thoughts on, on this. You've seen what's happened to Iraq over the years. It's it's always been the the key hub for the Middle East, and this is why I believe, and many others believe, the U.S. is and its allies have focused so so much on the the destabilization of Iraq, weakening it, dividing it, etc. How how important is it, or how much of a a fear is it of the West that there could be some sort of common market or and also common political union from from Iran to Iraq to Syria possibly to Lebanon is is that do you think in your opinion is that the biggest fear for the US and and Israel for instance that that could be established almost similar to an arab nationalist character but what do you think yes i mean this is already um, uh, on the ground actually patrick there is that alliance um, there is that alliance, although Iraq as a government is not part of it. But there are political forces in Iraq which advocate it publicly, and it has some popular support that uh, we need to resist uh, U.S. presence through cooperating with friendly uh, powers and forces in the region, because this is the only way we can protect ourselves from uh, a massive, aggressive U.S. Uh, Presence plus Israeli wars, expansion wars. They have already annexed parts of Syria, the Golan Heights. And the United States is supporting that annexation. A huge chunk of Syria, very strategic chunk of Syria. They occupied in 67, 1967. Now they have uh, officially, the United States has 
uh, acknowledge that annexation. They have annexed uh, Jerusalem officially, U.S. backed it. They moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. So you have a very, very uh, virulently uh, aggressive uh, force in terms of, uh, and Saudi Arabian rulers and so on are backing that uh, that type of aggression. So in, uh, in the face of that, they're grown over the uh, the decades, if you like, this uh, call for for an alliance to resist that, and that's what has what has happened actually on the ground. Iraq remains a very important link in this chain, and that's why the United States is focusing today, having been defeated in Syria, is focusing on Iraq to prevent it to become officially part of that. Uh, that alliance. But on the ground within Iraq, there is, uh, that alliance is, is, uh, is a material force, actually. And uh, um, there are voices from Algeria uh, and Morocco, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, uh, everywhere. Uh, this voice that says, you know, uh, there has to be some form of uh, alliance, otherwise we will be become the slaves of this uh, U.S.-Israeli-Saudi rulers, rulers alliance. And the recent developments showed that the United States is not as powerful as, uh, as some people thought. And uh, an alliance uh, to withstand this aggressivity. It's, it's a defensive alliance, really, despite Western media efforts to portray it as it's purely defensive. Israel invaded Lebanon, so a resistance force grew in Lebanon. Syria was attacked by terrorists and the like, so uh, uh, an alliance grew there. Yemen was attacked by, by the Saudi-led war and so on. So uh, uh, Iraq was invaded, occupied, bombed to smithereens by the United States, so a, a resistance force grew. I mean, it is purely, if you look at the history, it's purely defensive force to protect uh, what remains of the region in terms of all this uh, uh, imperialist wars and aggressivity. And uh, that is the scenario today. Well, we uh, certainly uh, we've only scratched the surface, Sammy, of uh, what is a, a massive topic of discussion, and we very much would like to hopefully continue that discussion again in the future. But we just want to thank you so much uh, for your time this week and for coming on the program to talk about this uh, timely, timely geopolitical topic. Uh, writer, lecturer, and anti-war advocate, Sammy Ramadani. Thank you for joining us this week on the Sunday Wire. You're most welcome, Patrick. Uh, and I hope uh, I will come again if you invite me. Thank you very much. Thank you. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Sammy Ramadani. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more reportage from another part of the world after this short station break with ACR. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. <laughs> 